I am Brad Levitt, host and founder of A Finer Touch Construction, and we're super excited to bring this amazing guest list to you of people that specialize in business, marketing, social media, entrepreneurship, and most of all, how to build a great company. AFT Construction is a local commercial and residential general contractor located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are continuously seeking ways to bring value to our industry clients and network. You can subscribe to us on any major listening directory by searching the AFT Construction Podcast. And of course, a big thanks to our sponsor, Sub-Zero Group Southwest. So if you're starting a new kitchen project, the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start. It provides an immersive environment to help you realize the possibilities of your future kitchen. Discover what it may feel like, look like, taste like, all in an exploratory, no-pressure showroom. No matter who you are, consumer, owner, or member of the trade community, the showroom is ready to assist you throughout your entire project. I visit the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom in North Scottsdale quite often. In fact, it's just around the corner from my office, so it's the perfect place to meet with my clients and the designer on the project. When we arrive, we meet with the showroom consultant whose sole focus is catering the visit to our needs. They seek to understand what products may be best suited for the client and then explain and demonstrate special features and functionality. We can browse the complete line of Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove appliances and then view them in beautifully designed vignettes, helping my clients envision how the appliances might look like in their home. The best part is that the consumers can interact with the products. They can turn the knobs, open the drawers, and ignite the flames, discovering the best fit for them. With the help of the showroom consultant, each visit is truly unique to the client. The relationship with the showroom does not end with the appliance selection process. Throughout the entire project, the showroom team is there to provide helpful solutions and offer advice and assistance. After appliances are installed, owners can expect a lifetime of support and helpful resources. The Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start, experience, and bring your visions to life. Schedule an appointment at your nearest showroom by visiting www dot subzero dash wolf dot com backslash showroom. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today, Mark LaLiberté, who is a partner and president of Construction Instruction. And Mark is a building science expert. He consults companies all over the country. In fact, the first time I met Mark, I was at a seminar, uh, CBUSA, which is a group of um, custom builders throughout the country. There was a conference here in Scottsdale, and I attended a lecture he gave on how to properly window flash. Uh, a, a window, how to do that detail. And he was so engaging and thoughtful and precise and communicative and just really good at delivering that information. It really stuck with me because I realized that the process we were doing previously uh, was not correct. And so really learned a lot. I followed him at, at the builder shows and a lot of his speaking engagements he's done. And as I mentioned, he consults with builders and national builders all around the country and shared so much good information. In fact, I had a whole list of information that uh, and questions I had for him, and we got to about a third of that, you know, in the hour that we allotted. Uh, so big thanks to him for making time. And, and one of the, the lasting comments he made, he said, you know, that it's really important in life that we're thinking about our path of continuous improvement, whether that's us as individuals or parents or business owners or builders, you know, how are we continually bettering uh, who we are? Because the building industry is really tough. And although Mark can be very tough on builders and very tough on the industry, he, he does it in a good way because he wants us to be better and he wants to educate us and wants to educate the public because it's a very complex system. And most people don't realize the complexity of construction and, and how many details can be missed if we're not doing it. And we dove into some of those components and details about energy efficiency and flashing and rain screens and so many important aspects that, that we need to be practicing as builders. And Mark LaLiberté is the co-founder and president of Construction Instruction. He has dedicated over 30 years to the building industry through his lectures, site assistance, Building Better Homes video series, and his mobile app. 
He provides builders, architects, and manufacturers with an in-depth look at the current and future state of housing. His work has earned him a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Energy and Environmental Building Alliance, EBA, where he developed the highly acclaimed Houses That Work Lecture Series. The HGW series has been delivered for over 16 years by the CI team in hundreds of North American cities. He works with various manufacturers to assist in developing products and services for the next phase of efficient homes. Mark is the co-creator of the CI app and animation studio, which developed the number one mobile app in the construction industry and builds realistic state-of-the-art. His passion for educating lies in knowledge how vital the building industry is. Building healthy, safe, durable, and efficient homes has an effect on the buyer, the builder, the economy, and the planet. So thank you, Mark, and you will enjoy this conversation with him. So welcome today to Construction Podcast, and I'm fortunate to welcome a good friend of mine and mentor, Mr. Mark LaLiberté. Welcome, Mark. Hi, how are you doing, Brad? Nice to see you today. Yes, yeah, so Mark and I have spent a lot of time together these last, uh, oh, I'd say last year almost, but, uh, you know, and, and Mark, before we get into it, I mean, you are the partner and president of Construction Instruction, which we'll dive into, which is a huge resource for us builders, and I will say that I was first fascinated with your lecture, you had spoken, I was at a CBUSA conference here in Scottsdale with builders all around the country and you'd presented, uh, you, you know, your, your uh, discussion on flashing and zip walls and Tyvek. And I was just fascinated the way you present and conduct yourself and your knowledge in the industry. And I know you've given back to our industry so much. So can't thank you enough for that. Oh, thanks, Brad. That's very kind of you. Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy it so very much. I think part of that is that after so long, it still feels amazing, and I feel so fortunate to be part of such a great industry. So that's what I enjoy so much. I still have the same amount of passion I had 35 years ago when I got started in this business. So. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because off camera, you know, off air, we were speaking a little bit. And the, the, we do want to be a little tough on the industry, and I know you will, because one of the things that we're all trying to do as builders, we're trying to get better. We're trying to build better homes, more healthy homes, more efficient homes, you know, but we're also battling the realistic of trades and labor force and budgets and clients and expectations and design and all these things that we have to deal with. And so, Mark, I mean, you've been, and, and I think just to tee that up, you know, we want to preface that, you know, many of us builders, it's a tough industry. I don't want to say we're struggling, but there's some challenges to it, as you know, which I know you'll touch on, but it's the choices we make. And, and you made that comment yourself. So with all your experience, Mark, you know, you've traveled around the country, you've consulted with national builders, with local builders, custom builders. You know, what are some of the biggest mistakes we're making as builders right now? It's a great question, Brad. And, and I always want to preface the idea of mistakes. I would say that um, I, I'm, I recommend a strategy called a path of continuous improvement. And I don't think we do enough of that. And, and oftentimes, I think we get comfortable with being in the place that we're always in and saying, if I've done well so far, I must be crushing it. And I think what's important is that we realize that um, the path of continuous improvement, something that I've actually witnessed within your company, I've been so impressed how you don't let uh, days and weeks go by without looking at a process or changing a, a, a deal or a, uh, educating an employee. And I think that's part of the challenge, Brad, is because you mentioned things like, um, you know, we have uh, clients and we have uh, weather and regional issues. We have uh, material supplies. Look what's happened in the wood industry in the, in the last uh, few months. And we have code changes, codes changing. If you look at the, the, the map of the U.S., codes are all over the place in all areas. State, the state of Arizona, where we are, um, has no state building code. So what that means is that each municipality kind of adopts their code so that what's, what you build in Phoenix is different than what you have to build to in Scottsdale versus the county. 
And, and imagine that variation in a manufacturer that said, every time you move to a different city, you have to build a product to a different level. So, th so those things I appreciate. I also appreciate the fact that, you know, we ask a lot. We have uh, maybe 25 to 30 trades, um, all coming together in, uh, with thousands of products. And your job is to orchestrate this thing in a way that sounds like a beautiful symphony right but sometimes sometimes it's 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 not that and um i think that that's not always a fault it's a process challenge but um how well are we setting expectations for example um what do we tell our uh our trades in terms of scopes of work just put on stucco isn't enough it's got to be here's what i need here's my expectations i need a rain screen i need a drainage plane i need integration with the windows all the penetration so that's one scope of one trade hvac the same way i need all the ducts installed clearly and straight i need no crimps and bends and things that are smashed proper details and, and proper testing and ver ver uh, validation and verification so I think that's what makes this hard, Brad, is that imagine all of those coming together. It's like building a car where somebody throws the parts of the BMW you just bought on the driveway and a guy drives by and goes, hey, I, I think I could put it together. And, and so we're trying to create this uh, very, very complex product that should last, what, 100 years? Is that fair? 50 to 100 years with a, a real interesting host of players. And so as much as I, I appreciate how complex it is, I also think it means a, a remarkable level of responsibility that we have to take. And that means don't let that stuff slide and hold yourself and the industry to a very high standard. Well, I love that you said that, Mark. What's interesting is I think you painted a picture for anyone listening, whether you're a builder, designer, architect, client, you know, or, or just customer learning more about construction. What's interesting is the analogy you gave about the parts type of BMW being dropped off in your driveway. Well, if someone, you know, a how-to kit and you're building your own car or here's, you, you know, here's the TV components, build your TV, you know, there's not a lot of, um, uh, you, there's so much complexity to it that people don't realize, you know, if you're going to Costco and you're buying a TV or you're buying a car, well, it's coming off the manufacturer lot, there's systems in place, you know, there's protocol, there's quality control, you know, all these things are going through a line there and it's being checked and checked and checked and tested before it hits the consumer. In construction, that's not the case. And then it's further complicated when, as you mentioned, you have all these building codes and every city's different. And then it's even more complex because some architects and engineers get it, some don't. You may ask your architect, what's, where's the rain screen? And they may just stare at you, right? Because they're designing a pretty house, but they're not looking at the little intricate details. And then, of course, as you mentioned, I mean, just the manufacturers, right? The salesmen may come out selling their brand and they may say, this product's phenomenal for the market. You need to use it. But that's their biased opinion because they're selling a product when, you know, that may not be beneficial to us in our market. It's, it's really well said, very nice summary. And I, and I think that, you know, we do actually do what I, my analogy with the car is actually what we do, you know, the lumber company uh, tips down the uh, thing and then drives the truck off really fast. So the lumber drops on the ground, <laughs> right? So I've got, I've got the lumber in the mud. I've got the trades showing up and driving up and hauling up materials. So uh, I was on a job site yesterday, for example, and I looked at the details. They had tacked up uh, uh, the weather barrier, which was just a layer of black paper on some uh, OSB that had been exposed way too long and what I would consider to be a three-quarter million dollar house. And it was blown in the wind. It was all poorly detailed. There was big gaps in it. They were sticking pieces of foam over it to put stucco on. And I, I looked at that and thought, a homeowner who hired that builder said, 
you're a professional builder. You have a license. I'm assuming you're trained, you're experienced. You um, are looking at my investment, the biggest investment I make, and your trades, your team, and everybody involved would be extraordinarily good at taking my house as such a personal thing that it is to me and make it really well done. And I think that's an assumption that, that homeowners make. And sometimes we as an industry get caught up in things like first cost and um, the challenges with, with timing and trades and the difficulty. I mean, look at the difficulty of trades at the moment, Brad. You know, if you figure you're just lucky if a warm body shows up sometimes because it really is that difficult. You know, you've, if you look at all the trades, uh, if you ask the trades, there are, there are um, circle companies, for example, in California with a thousand employees. Imagine the attrition that goes on within that company and how you bring on one guy in one week and another guy leaves. What is your training program? Um, what is the, the verification program? Yeah, I used to install stucco, the guy goes, perfect, you're hired. Does that mean they were, it was installed correctly? And what is each company's specification for what they stand behind? If you put your name AFT in a building, that is your heritage, that's your legacy, it's your reputation. And if every trade followed things that carefully, I think we'd have a little bit more um, care. And I'm not saying people don't care, but I look at a lot of details where I've seen beautiful workmanship. I've been in some of your houses and your, your carpentry and your finish work is just extraordinary. And I think you would say that's because of the person, not necessarily the price or anything else. They set an expectation, you pay them a fair wage, but you go, but I expect near perfect execution. And they're like, you know what, Brad, I, I like working for you because you care about craftsmanship and you, you, uh, you post something that I've done well and you compliment me on good work, that feels good. So it can't just be about price, it's gotta be craftsmanship and workmanship comes from the heart and, and what I leave as a legacy, not just, hey, slap it out and get it done, which unfortunately happens too often. I, you know, I love that you share that, Mark. And I think the biggest challenge for us as builders, I mean, this is something I deal with, you know, and as much as I communicate, a client comes in, okay, Brad, you know, uh, you know, I'm thinking about hiring AFT or I'm thinking of hiring X builder, but your stucco cost is more, you know, across the board, it's more, maybe it's 60,000 and the competitive builders are doing it for 52. And what's really hard for the I would just say the client that maybe is not an expert in construction as you are, Mark, where they have seen this, where they're driving by and they're seeing this OSB that's been sitting out black paper and there's no rain screen, there's no, you know, waterproofing membrane, there's nothing behind it and there's no way for that water to exit as you apply the stucco. And it's really hard to convey that. And then it's even more complicated. As you mentioned, you get the analogy of a stucco company in California. Why well, look at it here? Well, yeah, if I have a thousand employees, I'm just hoping they show up and there's a body on the job. I have commitments. I'm trying to make overhead. I'm trying to meet these builders' expectations. And it's so complicated. And, and yet, even as a builder, trying to make sure that they're executing, that the price is right, and we can still honor the trade, the craft. Yeah, that's why, that's why I always have to be so careful when, I, when your question was about mistakes. I, 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 it's always a hard thing because... I think that I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and goes, today, I'm going to do a crappy job. I'm just not into it today, and I'm going to do a poor job. I think people wake up, the trades, the builders wake up and go, today, I'm going to try to execute and do my job well, whatever that is. But I think that what happens is we, we, we set these bars that aren't as, as good as they should be. For example, if, if you look at work, I mean, how many of the builders and, and, and trades listening would say, um, have you ever looked at something and gone, you know, it's not that great, but I got to keep going. It'll be fine. 
<laughs> so what we do is we, we, we accept what I would say mediocrity, right? So there's oftentimes I said, I've said to builders many times, have you ever um, accepted work that you thought was inferior? And all of us would say, well, of course. And I'd say, so what drove us to do that? But if I'm a trade, I might say, well, you just said that was acceptable. So that will be my new standard for you. Uh, I was on a job site last week down in, um, uh, down in Chandler. And I, there was a, a, a site inspector that was there. He was with a private company that was doing site inspections. And he said, you know, it's interesting. I was with a very big production builder there. And he said, I've seen the same trades do two levels of work. And he said, because in this particular uh, site, they don't really care that much because the uh, job soup doesn't hold them accountable. The other site, the job soup's really tough, really says, hey, you know what, step it up a notch. You're gonna have to tear this out. So they establish their own level of expectation based on the expectations of the, uh, the employer, which would be the builder. So I think we all need to improve what we look at and say, you know what, that could be done better. Uh, I would appreciate it if those lines were straighter. Could you, could you do that, that uh, with more care? I think the trades like doing work carefully and professionally. They just need to be appreciated for it. I love that you said that. It's interesting because the, the example you gave is where you have a big national builder and depending on the superintendent's qualification or knowledge or focus, if you will, right, each subdivision is going to run different. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I've seen where, you know, just internally, you know, when, when I look at the past as a company, when we'd come out and we're just trying to get through the process, get the guys on site, go through the schedule, make sure they hit their dates, you know, that's one part of it. But now if you go a step further and I, you know, our crews like Adam and Andrew and some of these who you've met and Paul, when they come out, it's like, okay, here's the orientation. Here's what we expect. You see the job site cleanliness. We expect you to clean up at the end of the day. Here's how we want this install to be. Here's the, the requirement. And so as you have this orientation of lay them out and set that precedence, you know, they, they now can be successful because now they kind of understand our expectation and they can live up to it. Whereas if we're just throwing them out there and not leading the way, there's no way for them to be successful. No, that's very true. I, I can see variations just in job site cleanliness, as you brought up. I've been in sites where there's nothing but pop cans and uh, soda containers and bags of lunch is just thrown all, strewn all over the place. And then I've been to another site where it's, it's meticulous as, as yours are. And I think that's also an expectation, right? I don't think a trade's charging you less because he gets to throw the garbage in the site. I think that if you said, you know what, here's where we put stuff. This is what I expect the trades go. Okay, you know what? Uh, AFT's really picky about their job sites. They don't want you to leave unless you pick up your things. That's what we do here. It's not like I'm going to charge Brad an extra 300 bucks because he makes me pick it up. Right. They're going to go, I, I just pick up because Paul and Adam and, and, and Andrew, those guys really have an expectation. And when you set that, they'll do that. So I think it's, again, it's, it's ideas of clear scopes, um, clear details. Um, I like mock-ups. I'm a big mock-ups fan. Um, I've been on so many sites in different parts of the country where a builder says, what's a critical component? You'd say a window installation is essential, right? It's, it's got to be done right because if a window leaks, uh, there's all kinds of messes. So he builds a mock-up on site, scrap materials, gets a window from his lumber yard that's uh, in the boneyard, and he puts in a window beautifully. And he brings it to the job site, sticks it in the garage before the windows are going in and says, listen, everybody, that's what we do. And I don't care how many windows you've installed or what you do. My name's Brad Levitt and I have to hold the accountability of this company. If the window leaks, it's on me. So I want you to do it that way because I've vetted the installation. And, and the uh, trades come in, they go, all right, I will or I won't follow that. But 
in the end, everybody, the, the I've seen installers go, well, then I'm not going to stand behind it. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, if I ever had to go to court and I'm standing there and I liability claim and I look behind me, I don't think all the trades are standing back there going, Brad, I got your back. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, you're, you're, you're the guy. You're the builder that stands up and says, I'm the general contractor. I'm accountable to the homeowner and to this product and its longevity. So set your standards, your process, and your educational expectations and, and drive those to be exceptional and you'll get better performance. And I think you've, you've done that. I've watched how you uh, look at your scheduling strategies is, is remarkable. And I think because you've committed to that style of scheduling, you have a better scheduling process. I think people show up when they said they'd come because you asked them to do that. When will you be here? Tuesday at four o'clock, Tuesday at, at noon. Then they show up because they told you they would. And that's asking people to, um, to, to measure and, and actually validate what they said they would do. Well, it's interesting. I, and I'll say, you know, that's one of the benefits of uh, being surrounded with professionals such as yourself, Mark, that have taught me a lot over the years. And it's funny, before I started my company, actually before I worked for a general, I worked through college for a subcontractor in San Diego. And it was interesting because I really saw, I worked for a lot of big commercial builders uh, throughout the country there in San Diego as a sub. And I remember being, we were working at the school district and, you know, when I, I was doing a lot of government work at the time in the school district and working on the Navy base um, there in Coronado and Point Loma. And it was interesting because there's this one general contractor that we showed up and he did that. He had an orientation with us as the, the labor force out there. He set the expectation of what he wanted us to do. And he said, look, at this time, we didn't have cameras on the phone, but he had this digital camera. And he said, I'm going to take pictures of everywhere you're working because we're on the school and we were working at night. He said, you can't leave any debris, any electrical, any fiber optics, anything, you know, you need to pick up and otherwise I'm going to find you and your company. And it, for us, we're just like, oh, okay, that's the expectation. We're going to live up to that. We did it and we complied and he wasn't rude about it. He was just set the expectation and, and then it allowed us to perform you know, the site was clean. It allowed us to be efficient. And I just remember that impact that had on me, how you said, if you give people an opportunity to be successful, they will be, but you have to, as you mentioned early in this conversation, you have to give them the path to continual improvement. Yeah. And, and explain to them why it matters because you said, listen, my clients um, have an expectation of me. So yeah. I have to transfer that expectation to you. And when they get done, the person they're paying is Brad Levitt and you're paying the trades to execute on their expectations. So, and we know that expectations are challenging, right? We have, you have an architect that does a really pretty picture and you've got to figure out every, every way to make it happen. And the client has an expectation because they don't really realize how complicated it is to do this. This is, I don't think any homeowner, and, and I think many times you build homes, they're like, I had no idea it was this difficult. I didn't know it would take a year to build a house. How is that possible? They do it on TV in, in two episodes. <laughs> and um, so I think that it's what's really hard is for people to say, well, how come anybody, nobody's out here today? And you're like, well, we're, it's a scheduling and we're looking at this detail. So building houses is probably one of the most complex businesses there is. And um, I think it's also one of the most difficult and um, I think the expectations that uh, everyone has around us means that we as an industry um, have to hold ourselves uh, to a very high standard because think of it, Brad, how many people really get involved at any level of manufacturing, whether it's cars or anything else, where a product is supposed to last 50 to 100 years? You know, I, th I think that's a high expectation. But if you think about it, how many times have you ever done a remodeling project and you pulled some 
details apart and you're like, oh my God, this, the sheathing is rotted. Uh, the base plate is, is, is rotted. The deck board's pulled off. And you're like, what would it have taken for someone to do just a, a step up, a little bit better job so that when I pulled that apart, um, I was able to continually proceed. Otherwise, I got to go back to the client and said, you know what, uh, the rim joist is rotted. We're going to have to jack up the floor, put in a new rim joist, sister on some new uh, uh, floor joists to bring this back up. It's going to cost an extra 10000 because someone didn't spend an extra $400 and use the right fastener and the right adhesive and the right sealant. So I think that's the other part of this is that we sometimes walk away and don't realize this house is exposed to remarkable levels of weather, right? And, and lifestyle. So um, we have to really appreciate all of that. That's why, again, you know, I have such appreciation for this industry, but I also believe that we have an expectation and a, and a responsibility to really do a great job. And um, I continually see builders improving. I think you've noticed on Instagram, a really substantial improvement in Builders saying, look what I did. This is amazing. What do you think? And somebody <laughs> sends a note back and goes, you dummy, that's not a good idea. And you're like, oh, damn. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's a great forum because there's really no other place to do that. If, if you build houses in northern Minnesota, how many other builders do you interface with before Instagram or before social media that said, you know, that's really not a good idea? And he's like, I, I've been doing it for years. I, I didn't know. So this is a great forum. What you're doing today is a way to share knowledge and experience in a much broader sense. And so I commend you for taking that effort because it does matter, Brad. No, I love that. The check and balance of social media has been important. And, and I'd love to dive into that here a little bit later. But it's interesting because what you said, Mark, you know, you talked about the complexity and difficulty. And I think, I think the hardest thing to convey just as a builder, you know, when I have customers come in or potential clients, you know, and, and, and I've worked with clients too in the past that they think it's a matter of you get these bids, you sign the contract and they just go kind of do their work and they don't realize how these pieces go together. Right. And the complexity of a hillside build and you know, the, the, the waterproofing and, and the staging and the phasing and everything that goes into this build. Um, and then as you mentioned, just to get their flashing details, right. So that if someone's remodeling this home in 20 years, that they're not going to find all these issues right to the bones of the house. And that's the hardest thing I have is, you know, customers are so worried about budget and trust me, I'm very active on social media. So I love the pretty kitchen. I love that beautiful cabinetry and the pretty range, you know, and I want my clients to have budget dollars allocated for that. So I can show that off for them. But the reality is there has to be money in the bones of the structure. And that is where a lot of builders are cutting corners. And so I want to dive into a few of these, Mark, because this is where you really are an expert and you train, you know, companies all around the country. And this is something I know you're doing later this week. I mean, this is something you're doing daily. So I guess the first one, you know, when we're thinking about what, you know, the waterproofing, you know, weatherproofing of a home, it's going to depend by area, right? As you mentioned, Northern Minnesota to Phoenix were totally different climate zones. What are some tried and true methods that you've seen builders doing that'll help the performance of, of the waterproofing aspect? You know, it's, it's a great question, and it's really interesting how we've um, made the assumption that if you live in Philadelphia that gets 60 inches of rain a year in Seattle at 49 and Arizona at 6, that we have different strategies. But, but I'll take, it, take issue with that. As you know all so well, when a monsoon comes, you think you are in, in Houston, a Houston hurricane. Yeah. And so what we have to do is really appreciate the fact that weather changes continuously. And um, whether you're in northern Minnesota or you're in, in, in Arizona, you have to do a phenomenal job of 
installing windows. You have to do a great job of installing air barriers. You have to do a phenomenal job of installing things like uh, HVAC and the ducting and making sure it's sealed properly. Waterproofing foundations, installing capillary brakes. Those are essential for buildings. I don't care where it's located. So if somebody said, do I need to flash windows in Phoenix? It's like I was saying that the window site, uh, the site I was at yesterday, some of the sloppiest window installs I've ever seen. Now I've seen some pretty sloppy window installs, but everybody goes, ah, don't worry about it. You're in Phoenix, who cares? Well, I'll tell you what, um, if you go into some older houses and see window leaks and water leaks and the musty smell in Arizona houses, it's because of that, that lack of attitude or that, that, um, lack of concern for saying, you know, when it rains, it's enough. Um, and it comes in a, in a voracious way. So we do have a higher drying cycle, no doubt about it. We do have a bit of more forgiving climate, no doubt about that. But aside from that, I would say you properly pan flash windows because all windows will leak in their, in their span. And window manufacturers always get mad at me when I say that. I'm not always saying that the window itself will leak, though it can. Uh, we know that we have welded corners and complex pieces, but the installation often leaks. And that's because water gets by everything. So it gets by the cladding, it can get by the weather uh, uh, management layers, it gets within the building assembly. So if we said, all right, fair enough, 98% of all the rain is gonna fall off my cladding on the outside, done. What about the one or 2% of water that gets by? And someone might go, that sounds insignificant, but it isn't. And what happens, it can get back behind the cladding, it can fail a paint film. Everybody's watched paint film blow off the cladding. They've watched water that gets into a wall cavity. You, you've opened up a remodel project and see mold on the wall cavities. Uh, Houston, in the, after the hurricanes, they pulled off the inside uh, gypsum and watched the uh, sheathings completely rotted behind the brick. So we have to care about all aspects of building integrity. So why are you adding insulation in Phoenix? And you're like, yeah, for, for years, people are still building with two by four walls here. And, and I think that what's interesting here is that it's, uh, we have people have $500, $600 a month electric bills. In Minnesota, you would have a two by six wall with insulation on the outside, and you would have a $200 electric bill, an energy bill. And I think we get complacent that uh, colder, I mean, that warm climates don't need as much attention, and they really do. They should be airtight, thermally insulated, well-installed glass, properly flashed, and properly drained. So if you did that across all climate zones, then the minutia of which weather protection layer should I use here then can come into, into play. But I think in, in when I, you brought up a really good point. I, I talk about this thing about first cost being way too large of a driver. And I think what happens is you're like, who cares about the weather layer? The stucco guy goes, I'll put in your stucco. You should say, this is the weather protection layer we expect and the way it's to be installed. Yeah, I, I don't do that. I just, uh, I install <laughs> black paper. I'm really good at it. And uh, that's the way it comes. And you're like, well, then I can't have you do my work. Um, and so we all have to hold those layers because here's the catch. Once you put stucco on, it's done. You don't go back and, you know, lift it up and improve the layer. It's a one-time shot. You, and like you said about the interior, you can get a new counter, you can get a new cabinet, but you're not putting on a new wet layer of sheathing. So take a look at the products that are moisture sensitive, OSB and so on, and then protect them, manage them, bottom of wall details, all of that, do that extremely well. And I think you'd be, you wouldn't be surprised, you know this, but the cost to do it well are in the hundreds and maybe low thousands, not, tens of thousands. And so whenever I look at the details, I'm like, so spend an extra thousand dollars on 
taking your time to manage that well. And in the end, it'll benefit on a whole bunch of levels. You'll have zero to, to very few callbacks. Um, and the trades will appreciate the fact that that matters because a callback for stucco or a callback for a leaky window, what do you do? You go, uh, I got to cut off the stucco. I got to somehow get the window out of the opening. I need a case to caulk and caulk every opening I can find. And that's because someone didn't take the time initially. Have you ever had a house? I know you probably never have, but ever had a house with a, with a water leak? And, um, and they're, they're really difficult. I pull out all the trades. I get window guys and stucco guys, and they're all looking at stuff and spraying hoses. And you're like, stop. Do it right the first time, and it won't happen. And it is that clear. I, I've, I've worked with stucco contractors, Brad, that have said, I just factor into my price that I'm going to have leaks. And I said, well, then design not <laughs> so that you don't have that. And the difference between a $500 upgrade to improve the sealant and the weather protection will be offset by you don't have to send an employee out to fix a leak. And that seems so, like a, an even trade. Now that's interesting. So I, I guess, have you dealt with a lot of, you know, as you're consulting, you know, a stucco company, for example, because I, I would say, and I'm going to just talk about our market because our market really struggles with, you know, waterproof barriers. I mean, it just is, and I've seen it way too often, even as I drive, you know, around the neighborhood, you know, but I guess my question is, do you have contractors you work with that'll tell the builder, I don't care what's on the specification. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care what the architect says. This is my minimum. I'm going to require X, Y, and Z to do the job because my name's on it. Yeah, I do. I, I would say even here in Arizona, there's a couple of um, uh, stucco contractors and some window companies that'll say, we'll either do it this way or I'm not going to do it because um, there, it's the only way I feel I can stand behind it. So I like my window product and my window installation methods, something that I've tested. If I was a window guy and I'm installing windows, I would install a bunch of different techniques, have it water and pressure tested and say, wow, I had no idea that the two techniques I've been using leaked when I did a water test. But I did this other method and it never leaked. So I'm going to use that one. Imagine if, if a stucco company or window installer came to you or any builder listening and said, you know what, I, I, have, a, I have a set of standards that I really think are important and critical um, and they matter a lot to me. And, and I want to let you know that I expect the cladding to go on, not leak water, drain effectively, and to last a, a, a very long time. This is my standard. And I think if uh, you heard somebody say that, you'd go like, you know, as long as it meets my expectations, I'd like to do that. Um, and it, again, it's not tens of thousands. It might be in the upper hundreds or even maybe a, a couple thousand dollars more on a big, big house. But usually it's, it's hundreds, not tens of thousands. Well, it, it's interesting, Mark, because you talk about water tests and I know that's something you do, you know, uh, you know, with all these different tests, you do a construction instruction, which I want to dive into here shortly. But going back to the windows, it's fascinating because when, you know, coming out of college, I, you know, I didn't really recall learning a lot about the, you know, window flashing and, and being exposed in Arizona, you know, or especially early in my career, I'd remodel some homes in Chandler. And this was 20 years ago. I mean, this is late 1999, 98 that these homes were built early 2000s. And the framers would frame the house, set the windows, no flashing. And so we're remodeling this house and there's no window flashing, nothing 20 years ago. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, and one of the challenges we deal with, especially in Phoenix, and I know Matt's talked about this a lot, Reisinger in Austin, is that our HOAs dictate that the windows are set back, that they're recessed. And we deal with that a lot. You know, they have to be, you know, six inches or eight inches depth, 
you know, sometimes four inches, it really depends on where they face the street. And that's dictated by the HOA, which now complicates things for us because this is areas where water can, you know, be stuck and, and, and come into the home. So, you know, what are some ways to kind of work around that, you know, as far as understanding the importance of the waterproofing of the window flashing? Yeah, that's a really good, it's a really good question, Brad, because, you know, I see the same thing happen where uh, if you didn't have to push the window inside the house, you imagine the additional framing you have to do, right? Yeah. If they have extra framing and a lot of it. I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of framing. But if you looked at the details, I'd say make sure that there's enough space where the window goes in and that the fin can actually be um, properly um, uh, water managed. And I like fluid fl liquid flashings. You know, I think liquid flashings around recessed windows and openings are essential because you've got to get all the framing connections and joints. It's really hard to do a lot of the complex framing with tapes. If you do use tapes, you always want to use a butyl tape if you can. Um, there are um, acrylic tapes as well, but never use rubberized asphalt tapes. They don't stay adhered um, and they don't work. So it's a critical difference that you use butyl or, or high quality acrylic tapes. Um, or fluid uh, flashing materials. And those are, liquid flashings have become such an, a wonderful uh, addition to our industry in the last, you know, five to eight years that it now allows you to kind of, I hate use, I like using this word, but you kind of muck up the opening with this, with this liquid flashing. You then install the window so that, of course, it's never sealed at the bottom. Um, and uh, that allows the window opening to drain back to the outside. We also have to slope that um, that recessed opening and I've been to projects in Texas where the, the the bottom of the underneath the window the recessed is flat well after the lumber shrinks and falls back it'll be tilted back towards the house which means when the stucco cracks at that set it'll leak back into the wall cavity so we need a a decent slope to it and I don't mean just a subtle eighth of an inch per foot it's got to have a nice pitch to it if you look at windows in Europe if you go to European buildings and look at all the, the old, old buildings, you'll see masonry sills that are pitched at a six degree slope. And, um, uh, you know, it's really nicely done and they'll, they'll, they'll uh, make sure that the water intentionally falls off. As long as you keep liquid water away and you're just having to deal with the water vapor, it's a lot easier to dry. But it's the liquid water drip, drip, drip into an opening is a problem. So I'd say pan flashing openings to make sure they drain to the outside, back caulking all windows on the inside to make sure that whatever water does get to the sill under the window can, uh, um, can completely drains back to the outside. Give the water a path. Make sure that you're going to say, I, I know that it's going to get into the opening. The wind's going to blow. There's going to be a, a, a leak somewhere. I want all the water to leave. You know, I'll, I'll use another, something analogous to this. It's kind of funny, um, analogous to this. If, how many times do you like installing roof windows? And everybody that installs roof <laughs> windows, oh, I hate, I hate installing skylights. You're like, well, think about a skylight. When you buy the skylight, you also buy a very complex splashing kit. And you put the roof window in and you flash it and you flash it some more and then you add some more flashing to it. And I always ask builders, so what happens? And they go, they leak. I'm like, okay, so if a window on the roof leaks, try to visualize every time you install a window that you're installing uh, this window in a vertical roof plane. So pretend that that window is really on a vertical roof because that's really what that is. That window is being exposed to weather, water is falling, gra following gravity, draining back down and entering assembly. So always kick the water back out. The thing about a roof window is that you see the leak, right? I've got a stain on the ceiling and you're like, ah, there it is. When the window in the vertical wall leaks, you don't know. 
until either a stain, a smell, or something's failed. So that's why we have to do that uh, much better. So treat your wall windows, um, I should say, um, as you would treat any window um, in, a, in a roof assembly because it is that critical that they're properly drained, properly installed and flashed. And again, back caulking on the inside is critical. So never caulk a bottom fin so the window water can get out, drain the assembly, back caulk on the inside um, as an air seal as well as a water seal and you'll have a beautiful install so that if the window should leak at year one, year five, year 15, it doesn't matter because windows will leak. And when they do, you just want it to run to the outside and then you're nothing but net, you're good. But if the window leaks and you haven't prepared for it, then you got a problem. No, I love that, Mark. And that it, that's so important. I mean, liquid flashing is something that we want to be using more. You know, the slope window pitch is something that makes a lot of sense, especially that's why you see these old buildings in Europe perform, right? They understood this in the butyl tape, you know? So let me, you know, and I love the analogy of a roof window, which we all hate skylights because it's just, it's so hard as a builder, right? To execute that detail without them leaking. And so uh, apply that same methodology to the exterior. Now with thinking of the exterior walls, whether you're using like a zip wall or a Tyvek, you know, is there a product you recommend? Because one of the tough parts, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the bottom plate, the top plate, right? The top of the wall, bottom of the wall, especially where you have that soffit come in and tie into the wall where even if it's at a negative pitch, I mean, water can still maybe travel down. I mean, do you recommend, you know, taping or using some kind of butyl tape or something at the top or bottom of the, of the walls themselves? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's an area that we've missed way, way too often that the bottom of wall is a very vulnerable place because the open edge of the OSB is usually exposed quite close to grade. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of people that say, Brad, could my stone on the outside go all the way into the dirt? Yeah. I really don't want any of my friends to know that I had to install a foundation, you know? Yeah. So, so <laughs> what we do is we, we have to protect that bottom layer. So where the slab or the, the wall comes up to the... Um, pass grade, and then where the plate sits there and the OSB comes down, that should be properly flashed. And I mean, liquid flash would be really nice or a butyl tape, um, clean up the assembly and tape that on there. A lot of builders go, yeah, the concrete's dirty. Well then wipe it off because you have one chance to do this, right? We have one chance at the bottom of wall. So get a wire brush and scrape that, put down a primer if necessary to uh, prepare that there and get a, a good high quality tape, not something that you, you bought like duct tape. This is something that's gonna stand the test of time. So flash the whole base of wall between the OSB and whatever your, your, uh, your component is, whether it's a, a slab or a stem wall or a crawl space or a basement. Finish that detail beautifully. At top of wall, um, if you're using a, um, a sheet good a, a, a membrane like a Tyvek type, type product, you then should put a, a layer of sealant that you would, would embed the, the, the weather barrier into the sealant, or you would then use a butyl tape or acrylic tape and tape that very effectively from the weather barrier protection layer to top of wall. If you're using a, a sheathing based product that is um, an integrated weather protection layer, that still requires careful attention. You have to do a phenomenal job of every seam and rolling the joints and do all those things carefully. And in all cases, I believe a rain screen is necessary. And I think that people are learning about this new term rain screen, though it's been around for a very long time. Um, you'll see it on buildings. Uh, old timers, for example, used to install cedar siding on a furring strip because they knew that the cedar siding needed to have a little bit of breathing on the backside of it which improved the longevity of the cladding. So I believe that all claddings, except for vinyl steel and aluminum, 
need a draining space, probably be about three eighths of an inch or 10 millimeters behind the cladding system, stucco um, and, and wood cladding and cement claddings all need an airspace that allow the rain to drain by, but also allow air to accelerate the rate of drying when it's passed. Um, and I would say that brick, for example, has always had an airspace, right? So I, I often ask contractors, do you think brick leaks? And they're like, well, of course it does. And you're like, oh, exactly, it does. So it leaks at the mortar, water gets behind it. We've created an airspace of between three quarters of an inch and an inch and a quarter um, minimum space. At the bottoms, we've always created a weep hole. So we agreed that the claddings leak. We've created an airspace for them to drain out. And we've had an opening at the top of the brick wall and the weeps at the bottom allow ventilation. So if we treated all of our cladding systems the way we've treated brick historically, we'd allow ventilated claddings to have an amazing impact on buildings. So I personally believe all claddings in all climates, Brad, even in Arizona, and you'll notice on the house that we'll build, we'll have a rain screen behind all the stucco. And using an integrated product like a, uh, uh, Dorkin's got a product called uh, a stucco stone and lath and it's a drainage mat with the lath um, integrated right into the rain screen so it's got drainage lath all impregnated in the product and Tyvek's got a draining weather barrier so I think we got to look at those types of products always. Well I love that you shared that and what's uh, funny Mark just to be transparent so uh, you know when I attended your demonstration, demonstration talking about the rain screens and, and, you know, when you're putting in stucco and that needs to drain properly and you need to have, you know, either rib Matthew Tyvek or whatever it may be to create this channel. Uh, we came back after that meeting and immediately made that a standard at our company. And that was only a few years ago. I mean, this is how these things are transpiring and we're being educated. So kudos to you for teaching us. And that's helped us internally, you know, and one thing I know you've corrected me, which, I do appreciate because sometimes I'll post them on social media and you're like, Hey Brad, check for this, look for this. And one thing you've told me is say, Hey Brad, you know, check out, you know, make sure you're paying attention to the capillary break. Right. So explain what that is for anyone listening to capillary break and why that's so important. Yeah, I think we've, uh, we've forgotten that a bit. Again, I, I'll use a reference back to Europe. I've been in Europe where I've seen all kinds of the stucco and the claddings are always held up off of the next layer of material. And um, I would say that, uh, on footings, for example, I'm a very strong proponent of putting a capillary break on top of a footing. Now on a monolithic pour, that's very difficult. But on a, a stem wall, so a footing stem wall and slab or footing stem wall basement crawl space, um, the uh, footing should have a capillary break. And that can be a product like a Delta Scout product called footing barrier. It can be a mastic that's applied to the footing uh, tops. But in isolating the, that capillary break, uh, which is the connection between the, the um, footing and the vertical stem wall. Uh, we can wick water and concrete well in excess of a thousand feet against gravity. So many times we'll see things like uh, concrete density improved. Um, when you exceed maybe 5,000 PSI of concrete in the density of concrete, that substantially reduces the capillary draw on, uh, on concrete. So you could either capillary break the uh, footing top to vertical stem wall. You could increase the density of that product, but there's ways of addressing that. And what that results in is as the water comes up through the footing, if you've waterproofed one side, the only direction the moisture can go is back to the interior. If you've got, uh, let's say you've got a lot of retaining walls. How many times have you looked here in Arizona, I see retaining walls that have been up for two years. They look like they've been up there for 20. Yeah. And all the moisture coming up from the soils, crawling up the, the, the salts, 
um, push off and fail the stucco. If you drive anywhere in Phoenix, look at all the, the, the barrier walls and they all look like the stucco's blown off. So interrupting capillary uh, wicking will help reduce that moisture draw that has to find a way out. It's gonna come up naturally, the, the footings are in wet soil and it's gotta dry away. So capillary break uh, concrete footings. Capillary break claddings and those materials. Like we, in the old days, we would take siding and we even do it here in Arizona with stucco. I watched the stucco get finished and, it's, and the stucco's finished right to the roof. It should be separated off the roof uh, enough space. When I look at things like um, Hardy, for example, recommends a large gap between the finished roof and where the Hardy plank finishes. We, uh, we agree as an industry that wood absorbs water, concrete absorbs water. So isolate those materials that are water absorptive from a place where they can dry and drain effectively. And don't set them in the dirt, don't hide them and, uh, and make everything so tight. You know, a lot of times carpenters want things super tight, really clean. But we know that's where if you look at a piece of fascia, where the fascia comes together at the butt joint, that's oftentimes where you'll see the paint fail. And it's because the water came in that butt joint and blew the paint film off. So if you would just uh, put a, a, a paint on each one of the cuts and then apply them back together, you'd see it wouldn't support capillary draw of the wood. So capillary breaks can provide a very nice improvement in longevity. I love that you share that because, you know, where you've educated myself, and I think for those listening, what you're explaining is so, you know, using a retaining wall example, we all know that it wicks, right? Concrete wicks, just like drywall paper, you know, toilet paper or a paper towel, if you set on water, it's going to start soaking vertically, right? All the way up. So what ends up happening is when you put in the footings of the site wall, if you put in this capillary break or you, you know, you put this coating on the top of the footing, that will prevent, as you now start to go vertical from the footing, that water from wicking vertically up, which will now, you know, bring up the calcium deposits. That's why you have the white. That's why you have stucco that'll start to crack and fail and chip off. And so essentially what you're saying is by waterproofing the top of the footing, that'll prevent that capillary break and water from wicking north up, upward. Yeah, it substantially reduces it. And we want to do that in all places. You want, I know you waterproof your, your, um, your um, retaining walls. And I watched you do that. And I'd, I'd always recommend that you would also waterproof the top of the footing as well. Yeah. Because, you know, if we try to... And we were missing that. Column, yeah, you were. But it's okay. And I, I think that the idea was that what we want to do is try to isolate those materials from the, the products, the, the, really the, the, the um, environment that causes them difficulty. And, you know, wood's amazing. Concrete's amazing. Uh, we have these incredible uh, resources um, that are available to us to build houses out of. We just have to take a look at where are their weaknesses and how do I isolate those weaknesses from them being exposed to a place that's going to cause premature failure. And, and that's really what we're trying to do is build long-term healthy, durable buildings with great craftsmanship, great attention to detail, so that the, the trades show this level of craftsmanship, which allows buildings to succeed. Homeowners uh, that do remodeling, just do the remodeling and not go back and repair all the poor work that was maybe done. Those things really matter in the long, in the long term. And I think it's critical to do it right the first time is the best term I can use. Stop, step back and go, you know what? I got one chance to do this well, and I'm going to do it right this time. And um, make sure that every time you set that standard for yourself, um, suddenly it becomes a habit. I love that, Mark. And what's interesting, I mean, you've, I mean, you've been so instrumental in developing, you know, so much knowledge to the industry and helping uh, builders such as myself. And I know one thing you did, which you introduced me to EBA, right? So Energy Efficiency Builders Alliance, and you developed a, a series for them, you know, 
called houses that work. So what does that mean? I guess we've, we've touched on some of this, but in theory, what is the purpose of houses that work? Yeah, I, I helped uh, originate it back in actually, you know, the 90s. And um, then with uh, assistance from other, uh, other great folks, uh, you know, Justin Wilson, Gord Cook, uh, Peter Yost, have all helped to kind of continually fine tune what we would consider to be houses that work as a strategy of a one-day workshop that EBA, the Energy Environmental Building Alliance, um, it's eeba.org is their website. And they're a nonprofit organization that's been for, I, I went to my first EBA conference in 1984, uh, probably before you were born, is it? I'm just, <laughs> yeah, just, just kidding, buddy. Um, but if, if you look at that strategy, I look at it and say, um, the organization has been trying to, to, to promote that. They just finished with their conference. And I know that you were a keynote speaker at that conference, Brad. You did a beautiful job. Awesome. And I would say that House of the Work was a full day workshop on everything you need to learn in, in the fundamentals. And um, it would take, you know, how many people get to learn their entire craft in one day? <laughs> but uh, in one day, you get an overwhelming experience. Uh, you came to CI Live, and that's a two-day class. And people would leave the two-day class and go, I felt like I was drinking through a fire hose. Yeah. Um, and so we really realized that um, a, a craft as complex as housing should have continuous training all the time. Trade your trades, train your trades, train your interior people, go out to job sites, train all the time. Um, and, and continually do that. You know, if you look at the best athletes in the world, all have coaches that continually train them. Once Tiger Woods or, or Phil, Phil, uh, um, Mickelson. Uh, Phil, Phil Mickelson. Mickelson. Yeah, Phil Mickelson, thanks. Once all those golfers, whoever they might be, um, have continuous coaches. They have a swing coach, a putting coach, a chipping coach, and you, you hit a thousand balls a day. Now, how do you not know how to do that? But you're perfecting your skill. A football athlete, a professional quarterback has a weight coach, a throwing coach, and a strategic coach. So we have to make sure that we have something as complex as this industry. We always are teaching. We're always training, being mentors. That's our job is to do that with everyone. Share your knowledge and never quit, right? No. Yeah, and I love that you share that, Mark, because, I mean, the analogy to sports, which you know, I can relate to is, is this true? I mean, in, in that industry, I mean, they, they are obsessed. You know, it's every day that they're – uh, perfecting that craft. And the problem is, as you mentioned, if we're not doing that in construction or design or architecture, the problem is we start to either forget these important aspects of the building process, or we tend to kind of, I don't want to say laziness, but we fall back into our comfort zones, right? And we start going with the flow and we forget to really start focusing on these little details. And, and, and you mentioned CI live, which is, you know, one thing I really want to touch on because for anyone listening, this is a huge resource. You know, my team, attended Mark's uh, construction instruction in Denver. And I think I, I remember them coming away and they're like, Brad, this is like mind blowing. We learned so much. And I'm like, yeah, I told you that. I mean, there's so much to this and Mark does such a good job instructing, but, you know, talk to us about, I guess, how you, the purpose of starting construction instruction, you know, CI live, you know, how our listeners can find more about it, how they can attend. I know with COVID it's a little tricky right now. So talk to us about that. Yeah, thank you. I would say that uh, in all the years I've been traveling, in most years I was traveling between 100 and 150,000 air miles a year and traveling all kinds of different sites and working with builders and, and manufacturers. And what we did is people would say, uh, you do a two-hour workshop or a four-hour workshop or a one-day workshop, and, they'd, and you'd leave. And I'd always feel bad that there's so much information in one day that they'd walk away and go, now what am I supposed to do? How am I going to teach my teams? How do I 
convey that information. So what we did is we created a program called uh, CI and construction instruction was originally an app. It's now 12 years old and it's the most uh, utilized app in the industry. It's a free app. You can get it on the Apple store or the Google store. It's, um, it's got over 10,000 assets in that app and there's webinars, there's um, uh, animated graphics, there are articles on PDF, all kinds of details to learn. You could spend uh, uh, months and months just reading through those and realizing that as a free resource, it's phenomenal. And then what we did about four years ago is we decided to do a, a physical training center in Denver. And we built, uh, it's about 11,000 square foot building. We have 6,000 square feet of classroom that can house up to 50 people. We have uh, 7,000 square feet of um, full, full blown laboratories. And a lab has got uh, water testing and, and we've got probably right now 20 mock-ups that are all on wheels and we can roll them around and do details and trades come in and builders come in and we have them install a window and we pressure test things and water test stuff and it's a really fun experience. We have probably seven different courses from advanced HVAC to just understanding how a building gets put together. And so once the COVID situation changes and we get a little bit better, I, I'm imagining spring, we'll be doing live training. But in the meantime, as I'm going there this week, we're doing, we're filming all of these segments and putting them up on the app. And so there are one hour webinars on advanced building enclosures and they're again free for the download to watch. Um, so if they go to, anybody goes to the app, you can look for the workshops and they're in there. And they're, they're phenomenal. We do, a, we do it in broadcast quality. We have multiple cameras, advanced lighting, great microphones to really do an extreme high level of, of education so that everybody gets, we're gonna, all of us are going to raise our game um, and do an extraordinary job of continually building better product. Well, I love that you said that because one of the things you touched on earlier in the conversation, we're talking about windows. You said, okay, well, if you're installing windows and you may have this tried and true method, have you really water tested it, right? Have you really you know, gone through that, that process. And, and, and so having these different installation processes, now you can test these in a control facility where you can see if they're really going to perform. And by doing that, that's going to educate us because now we're seeing it firsthand, we're installing it so we can see if it's working and then that allows us to go home and train our window installers, right? So it's that hands-on that makes a big difference. And then build that mock-up. There's a builder, I'll give you an example of in Portland, Oregon, uh, in Seattle named Walsh. And Walsh builds high-end, high-production uh, commercial buildings. And they water test every single install. So after they get a, a design from an architect, they build the mock-up and they water test it. And when they prove that it works, then they'll install that detail. Because he said, um, they're, they're an amazing company. He said, listen, I'm the guy responsible. If I've got a four, 10, 12 story building and I've got a water leak, it's systemic. And it means I've got problems everywhere and it's gonna be millions to fix. When I water test my detail, whether it's a cladding attachment or a, a difficult window install, and I know it and I can verify it's been tested properly, I have an, an incredible level of, of comfort knowing that if I implement that strategy, the odds of failure go down radically. And I think that's what we all need to do is say, you like, for example, you're building great big houses and you like um, the cladding is a combination of this and that stone and stucco and maybe some other cladding materials. I want to make sure this assembly works. And who do I go to? Who do I talk to about the best approach to make sure it, it holds up extraordinarily well? Someone building a million dollar or a $10 million house or a $250,000 house deserves a comfortable, healthy, safe, um, and durable building um, regardless of price point. And um, I think that's really the last, you know, comment that I would I would share today is that 
if you look at what COVID has at least done for everybody is to raise our awareness about the importance of the indoor environment. And um, every building and every house built today should have continuous mechanical ventilation. It should have um, a really well-designed HVAC system, which I find are still to this day are very poorly designed and installed. Um, and, and a remarkable level of, of improved filtration so that houses should be our safe haven. You know, you've got six kids. You care greatly, Brad, about where they are in their rooms and how they sleep. And you care about the water they drink and you're buying organic food. But the air is so critical. We breathe about 9,000 liters of air a day. We want to make sure that we're breathing healthy air. And as we make our buildings tighter for all the right reasons, energy and all the right stuff, make sure that every house gets a continuous supply of fresh air. And some people think it's counterproductive. You're like, why would I build a, a, a tight house and then provide ventilation? And it's called control. And you want to control water leaks and you want to control air, air infiltration in the building, but you want to control it through a con confined system that says, I'm going to bring it in, filter it, and distribute it to the bedrooms, pull stale air out of the generation points like kitchens and bathrooms and so on, and, and then pull the energy out of those airs. Those are called energy recovery ventilators. And I'd say that I looked at the first energy recovery ventilator in 1984 in Minnesota, and we were bringing those in out of Canada. And so I'd say that right now they are standard in many, many markets that you install continuous mechanical ventilation for the health of the occupants. And, if, and imagine, Brad, if you sat down with one of your clients and said to your clients today, do you care about the indoor air quality? Does, does the air, indoor environment matter to you and your family and your children? How many of them would say, nah, I'm good. Uh, I don't really <laughs> care about the air in my house. It doesn't make that sense. What they're saying is that in 2020, they assume, and there's that great dangerous word, right? That because I gave you $5 million or $500,000, that you took care of that part because that's what you do. They assume that's done. And if you said to them, by the way, code doesn't require me to put in a continuous mechanical ventilation, so did you want it? They'd go, nah, if code says no, uh, no big deal. You go, actually, I, I think you need it. So I, I just think those are really fundamentals that we have to continually address. Well, I love that you close with that, Mark, because being sensitive to time, the funny thing is I think we got through about a third of the questions I wanted to ask you because there's so much information and we may have to bring you on another time, even though you're busy, but you know, just in closing, you know, it's important because I, I look at when you talked about this builder doing that testing, that's something I never thought about. That really intrigues me because yeah, at the end of the day, we're responsible. You know, I know a builder who's had mud come through its basement walls and the clients like freaking out. I mean, that should never happen. Right. And you know, for me where I'm building in most of these HOAs require that I have three different forms of cladding on the exterior for the aesthetic, visual well are they going to perform i have to do that testing and understand because at the end of the day i'm responsible and we only briefly touched on the mechanical design and the energy efficiency and the healthy parts of the home we're gonna to have to table that for another um another time so i guess mark you know in closing you know where can our listeners find you how can they find more about the ci live app we're going to put that in our show notes you know and again uh when can we find out once after covid we can now attend in person yeah, constructioninstruction.com is our website. It's our, uh, my email, of course, it's marketconstructioninstruction.com. It's a place where people can go and find, you know, resources and information. We're improving our, doing a new web website that we actually hope to have available, you know, year, early December. So I, I would really hope people do that and, and continually learn and, and invest in your marketplace and invest in learning, train people, listen, learn, watch, um, and, and question. 
and um, hold people accountable for good workmanship. And if we do that, we're going to have this amazing industry deliver phenomenal product that will last for generations and be healthy and safe. And I think that's a fair expectation. So thank you so much also for uh, both the opportunity to work with you as well as um, having today as a, as a venue to just talk about doing a better job. And I think um, everybody does well. I, I don't ever want anybody to think they do a bad job. It's just we can always do better. So as we started the podcast today, it was the path of continuous improvement. And, and set that up as your, your mantra. Make sure that you're always improving everything you do, whether being a better dad, a better husband, or a better uh, a home builder, always work to, to improve. Mark, I, I mean, that's such wise wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing that in closing and for making time for us today. Great pleasure, Brad. Take care of yourself and we'll talk soon. So big thanks to Mark for making time to come on the podcast today. And just a follow-up, such great advice about thinking about, you know, the path of continual improvement. And especially as it comes to builders, you know, the, the analogy I love is you think about the complexity of, you know, if you were to drop off uh, a TV in, some, in front of someone's home, or if you to drop off all the parts of the TV, right? And all the components that go into that. And then all the phone calls and all the coordination and making sure it's done right. You're not going to have any leaks. And what I love that he said is that, uh, you know, how many companies are thinking about putting out a product that's going to withstand 50, 60, 70, 100 years uh, and perform. And that's what we have to do in the building industry. And it's so important that each of us are getting that continued education and just helping the industry by doing so. Social media has been a great advocate of this. You know, as we educate our clients, I know our clients that follow us have seen um, our desire to build a better home and we're not where we want to be. We're still striving to do so, uh, but it appeals to them and people will understand the value there. So big thanks to Mark. Make sure to go give him a follow. Check out um, what he's doing in the industry. He has so much great information you can find out on the web and YouTube and videos he's done over the years. So he's been a great friend and ally for us and, and a great consultant. So big thanks to Mark. And again, just for all of you listening, if you could please give us a subscription and rate us and give us a five-star rating and a comment that really helps for us in the analytics and the podcast. So thank you all for your support. It means a lot.